Welcome to Category 5 Technology TV. This is episode number 493 for Wednesday, the 1st of March, 2017. It's so great to have you here, and we have an exciting show for you today. In search of the legendary city of the monkey god, the expedition uh, was able to find not only the untouched ruins, but a lost civilization. And tonight we are going to be speaking with New York Times bestselling author Douglas Preston about his new book, which reveals uh, information about this expedition. So you want to stick around for that. Sasha, over in the newsroom, what do you got for us tonight? Well, here's what's coming up in the Category 5.TV newsroom. Air-gapped computers can have data stolen by a nearby drone... Cloudflare had a bad data leak. We might as well get used to it, used to it and get another web-connected children's toy has leaked a ton of data. And the next-gen gallery plugin for WordPress is our next big exploit. Time to upgrade. Stick around. The full details are coming up later in the show. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Welcome back. This is Category 5 Technology TV. It's so nice to have you here tonight. And we are joined by Douglas Preston. He's the New York Times bestselling author uh, and writer of The Lost City of the Monkey God, A True Story. Douglas, it's so nice to have you here. Thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks. Douglas, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what is the Lost City or the City of the Monkey God, the White City? It's got so many different names. What is this Lost City that uh, your book is all about? Well, it's incredible to think that in the 21st century, you might actually be able to find a lost city somewhere on the surface of the earth. But that's exactly what happened using very high technology. And uh, I wrote a book about it. And I tell the true story of this amazing discovery. Um, it's actually a legend. The lost city of the monkey god or the white city, La Ciudad Blanca, is a legend that has been bouncing around Honduras since the time of Cortez. And a lot of crazy people have searched for this city. They've, hmm. they, you know, fraudsters, con men, archaeologists, and uh, many of them lost their lives in the effort. Uh, but in 2012, the city, uh, a great lost city, was actually found in the Honduran jungle in an unexplored valley uh, using the technology of LIDAR. Awesome. We're going to learn all about this technology that was used in order to find the lost city. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your team and how you got involved in this? Well, I got involved about 20 years ago when I was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. I was interviewing a scientist who was an expert in remote sensing of the Earth from space, a guy named Ron Blum. And uh, I was for something entirely different. And he happened to let slip that he was working on a secret project looking for a lost city. And as a journalist, I was all over that, and I started pressing him to uh, tell me more about it. And that's how I met this guy named Steve Elkins, who was a filmmaker who was obsessed with finding this lost city. And he was going to find it, and he was going to capture the discovery on film. And uh, he had hired Ron Blum sort of to moonlight for him, him, him and his team, um, to moonlight for him, uh, looking at satellite imagery and radar imagery of Honduras, from space in this one particular area of Honduras called La Mosquitia, which is uh, one of the largest and most the wildest and most dangerous uh, uh, mountainous jungle areas in the world. Wow! And how? And now when you got involved, did you did you have the inclination? Did you think that we were going to find this thing, or was it more just for the adventure? I would think. Well, 
You know, I'll be honest People with you. People have been looking a long time here, Douglas. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I thought it was going to be a really funny story about yet another crazy search for this non-existent lost city. And I really believe that. I mean, I love Steve. He's a great guy. But, you know, he's like a obsessive. And I thought, well, you know, <laughs> um, it'll be a funny you, story. You. Uh, if, if they don't find the city, which I was sure they wouldn't find, it's going to be a very funny story. Mm-hmm. And if they do find the city, well, I'll be the luckiest journalist in the world. Right. And in 2012, uh, finally, they found uh, actually not one but two lost cities using wow. this technology. It was, I was completely blown away. And uh, I really uh, couldn't believe it when I first laid eyes on those images of those pyramids and plazas and roads and everything. I want to talk a little bit about this technology that you, you were kind of alluding to. Um, but, you know, the people have been looking for this lost city since when, 15, 1500s or somewhere around there? Yeah, since 1526 when 1526. Cortez wrote a famous letter to, uh, to the Emperor Charles V when he described that he'd heard very reliable reports of this fabulously rich civilization in the interior of Honduras, but he was never able to go there. Hmm. Uh, he was, you know, busy with conquering the Aztecs. <laughs> so. Oh, you know, maybe another day. <laughs> so here's the thing. So 15, in the early 1500s, this, you know, quest to discover the lost city began in so many ways. But now here we are, 2012, the technology exists to actually find this city. So what is the technology that you were able to use, and, and how does that work? Well, it's called LIDAR, which is uh, short for Light Detection and Ranging. Okay. And it's, it's really very similar to radar. But you've used ra- radar in the past and have never been able to find this city. So how does LIDAR uh, differ from traditional radar technology? Well, the, well, the radar technology was, they were using radar in a w- as, as a way to try to penetrate and see through the jungle foliage. But LIDAR doesn't do that. The uh, LIDAR plane, um, which was used, uh, was brought down from the University of Houston, the National Center for Airborne Laser Mapping. And it has a, a million-dollar LIDAR machine in it, which, by the way, was built in, wow. in Toronto. Nice. Um, and this machine, when flown over the jungle a canopy, fires 125,000 laser pulses a second down into the canopy. And then it measures the reflections. And the laser doesn't penetrate anything. It just bounces off a leaf or a twig or whatever. But even in the thickest jungle, there are holes in the canopy. I mean, if you go into the thickest jungle and lie down on your back and look up at the sky, you will see bits and pieces of blue sky. Okay. Billions and billions of laser beams being fired into the jungle canopy um, find those holes. And some of them reach the ground, bounce off the ground and come back up. And so what you get is a, what the scientists call a point cloud, which is an incredible three-dimensional oh. image of the rainforest with every little reflection, every pixel is a reflection off a leaf or twig. Okay. And then using software, you can remove all those reflections from the trees, leaving just the ground reflections, and voila, there you have a, a map of the ground in quite high resolution. The resolution is about one meter. So that's wow. not so bad. So I'm picturing as you're describing this, remember the, those um, toys that we had as kids that um, it had a whole bunch of pins on it and you put it on your hand and it would show oh, the shape yes. of your hand. Yes. So is, yeah. is the topography that you're looking at, is it very similar to that? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, uh, you know, um, it's very hilly. The, the, by the way, I should talk a little bit about the environment. Um, you know, this is thickest jungle in the world, but it lies on top of incredibly steep mountains and that are that are almost impassable. And inside these mountains are valleys completely locked in that because of their remoteness have never been explored. They're some of the last oh, yeah. unexplored places on Earth. And so what Steve Elkins decided was in a total crapshoot, uh, and I don't know how he convinced uh, the scientists to go along with this, yep. was to survey three of these unexplored valleys using LIDAR. And it cost a million dollars. They had to fly a plane down from Houston. Um, the technology has actually, some of it is classified. Uh, military technology is okay. the same technology used to uh, guide uh, cruise missiles to their targets. So the plane had to be guarded at all times by heavily armed soldiers while it oh, was wow. around. I mean, it was a serious uh, effort. Uh, and, you know, honestly, the scientists who came down from ENCOM were pretty skeptical. They thought it was just kind of crazy. Yeah, and they weren't really sure cow. why they were doing it. What a gamble. And, like, is this a, self, a self-funded expedition? Or, you know, we're talking big money here to just... T- take a risk and see, you know, are we going to find something? Yeah, exactly. Well, Steve uh, raised uh, the money from a wealthy documentary filmmaker named Bill Benenson, who uh, was okay. just so taken with the idea. Mm. And he does wonderful documentary films. So the idea was, look, if we find a lost city, we can do a documentary about it. <laughs> and it'll be fabulously successful. And then Steve called me up and said, you're going to write about it for the New Yorker magazine. Well, I was so skeptical that I didn't even tell the New Yorker magazine that I was going down there. Oh, I thought wow. to myself, I don't want to look like a damn fool yeah. when they don't find anything. So I thought, if they find something, I'll call the New Yorker. And if they don't find anything, well, maybe I can get a salvage of funny story on it. So what was that moment like when the LIDAR, you know, the top- topography came in and the discovery was there? Like, what, what did you see? <laughs> what, was, what was that moment like? It was a crazy moment. It was a hilarious moment. The uh, the mapping scientist, the chief mapping scientist, was very laconic and skeptical. You know, he's a scientist. He was yep. thought this was kind of crazy. And the data of three days of flying over Target 1, which was the first valley, was uploaded to Houston, crunched by computers there, and then downloaded back to Roatan. And it arrived early in the morning. And uh, so this guy, Michael Sartori, took one look at it and just about had a fit. And he came running out of his bungalow, screaming and waving his arms, saying, there's something in the valley, there's something in the valley. And we all rushed in. <laughs> and the funniest moment was when I saw his notebook. And he'd been, he's a scientist, he's taking notes, meticulous notes yeah. about everything, endless notes. So under May 5th, 2012, which was the day of the discovery, he had only written two words, holy <laughs> I, I hope I can say that on air. <laughs> anyway, um, so he he turned from this skeptical scientist into uh, kind of a raving Christopher Lloyd. It was it was hilarious. Wow. Now, okay, so the, the technology here we are. The technology exists and made this discovery possible. It's something that has been known about for uh, thousands or hundreds of years. Pardon me and. 
so now the technology's there, we've discovered it, and we're going to learn a little bit about the expedition itself, the ground expedition to actually go and seek out this lost city uh, in just a couple of moments' time. First, we've got to take a really quick break. We're joined by Douglas Preston, the author of The Lost City of the Monkey God, a true story. Stick around, don't go anywhere. Jeff Weston. Yaman. You're building a brand new beautiful website. What? Aren't you? No. Am I? Oh, you're a terrible actor. What? This is where acting comes into play. Oh, I didn't know we were acting. You're supposed to act. Okay, fair enough. Right. Yeah, I'm building a really cool website. Are you building a really cool website? You need hosting. One of the things about a hosting account is you don't want to have limitations put on your website. It's true. How much hard drive space do you have? How many email accounts? How many domains can point to it? Well, we've got an amazing deal for you. For a very limited time, cat5.tv slash dreamhost. For just $5 and a bit of change per month, you are going to get unlimited website hosting, unlimited email accounts on that hosting uh, service. You are also going to receive a free domain name. Ooh. So your own .com. Nice. To put that amazing website that you've been working on it's on true. there. If you run, if you want to build a WordPress site, fine. Sign up. Cat5.tv slash dreamhost. Just don't put Panama Papers on it. Just don't do it. But hey, uh, it's a great deal, folks. Best deal you're going to find. $5 and change per month. Go to cat5.tv slash dreamhost. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Welcome to the show. Today we are speaking with Douglas Preston. He's the New York Times bestselling author and writer of the book, The Lost City of the Monkey God, A True Story. Make sure you check this out. It's available on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Uh, we actually have a link for you just to make it nice and simple. You'll see it at the bottom of the screen there, and that'll take you to the book as well. Um, Douglas, so nice to have you here joining us tonight, speaking about your discovery, uh, your team's discovery of the lost city of the monkey god. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. So before the break, we were talking about the LiDAR technology, how that technology now exists to be able to discover something like the city of the monkey god. Uh, so what was it like now that you've got this data, you've got this information, and here, uh, what, a few years later, we're actually on the ground going to uh, see what is actually there? Well, an archaeological discovery really isn't made until you've uh, ground truthed it. That's the, that's okay. the term. Yep. So uh, we, we knew there was a city there. Uh, we weren't, you know, we had archaeologists who looked at these images and were absolutely floored. Couldn't believe what they were looking at. And so we organized an expedition. This was a joint Honduran-American expedition, international. Actually, we had British. We had some Mexican um, archaeologists on it. And uh, we went into the jungle in uh, February of 2015. Okay. Uh, the only way to get in there was by helicopter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it would have taken weeks through overland travel to get in and would have been very dangerous and not all of us would have survived. But, uh, you know, they dropped some, the Honduran army dropped some special forces soldiers. They cleared a landing zone. Our helicopter landed. We made a very crude camp in the jungle. And then we began exploring the city. And there were 10 PhDs on the expedition, um, three archaeologists and anthropologists, uh, some LIDAR engineers uh, and some logistics people, three ex-SAS British uh, military uh, jungle warfare experts who were, whose goal was to keep us alive. Mm. And, uh, you know, they had warned us ahead of time. They gave us this huge lecture about this is the most dangerous place in the world and blah, wow. blah, blah. 
I was listening to this thinking, well, you know, they're just trying to scare us. You know, I spent oh, a lot sure, of time okay. in, like, in wilderness areas, and I thought, well, I'm tough. You know, I don't, you know, sure. I've seen this area from above. It looks more like a paradise. And I feel like I have to ask Douglas, and then what happened? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my arrogance was taken down more than a notch. Uh, in fact, it happened the very first night. Uh, well, shortly after I arrived, night fell, and I was walking back from my hammock, hung in the jungle and kind of with a flashlight and I came across a gigantic fair to land snake coiled up very aroused in striking position tracking me I'd walked by it twice and this is the the deadliest snake in the new world it kills more people than any other snake it's very aggressive will sometimes attack you and chase you and bite you several times uh, very much unlike a rattlesnake, which, you know, is, just wants to get away. And it's about a thousand times more toxic than a rattlesnake. So I said in a very calm voice, although others said I was yelling, um, I said in a very calm voice, hey, you guys, there's a really big snake over here. So the leader of the expedition, uh, a British guy named Woody, came over and he said, oh, blimey, it's a fair to lance, the, one of the biggest ones I've ever seen. I'm going to move it. I thought, move it? I got to see this. So he cut a, a fork stick, he pinned the snake, and then it just exploded. It was striking everywhere. The venom was flying through the air. I mean, it was unbelievable. And the snake was bigger than he was. Wow. We hadn't oh really goodness. seen how big it was until it unrolled itself and thrashed about. So he wrestled the snake to the ground. He grabbed it behind its head. He got, the snake was trying to bite him. It expelled venom all over the back of his hand. I saw his skin was bubbling. And finally, he, oh he managed to pin the snake, and he cut off its head. Wow. And even okay. after he'd cut off its head, the headless snake continued to fight and tried to crawl off into the jungle, and the head continued biting and spitting and snapping, and it was, it was like something out of a Stephen King horror novel. <laughs> and you remember all this. Now, see, I would have passed out long before uh, the head beheading. Yeah. Well, it was funny because we had a National Geographic uh, photographer there and a guy with a film camera and both of them were so frozen in horror oh my. that they didn't get any of it I said at a certain point I said hey did any of you get that on film and they said oh no oh my god <laughs> I can't <laughs> even imagine oh my goodness but it was hilarious because the, the British guy after all this was over and he washed the venom off he said yeah. nothing like that to concentrate the mind is there <laughs> Wow. So that was day one. This is initiation. Um, did you have any other uh, frightening encounters or anything scary happen throughout the course of the expedition? Well, we, you know, there, there were a lot of unsettling things that happened. Like, for example, that night, um, a jaguar, a curious jaguar, came into camp and roamed among the tents, purring and, you know, kind of wondering. I was probably wondering who the heck we were. Sure. Uh, large animals, very large animals blundered around our tents, crashing and snapping twigs. I thought, aren't these animals supposed to be stepping delicately through the forest? But no, they were just like crashing around. So everyone was worried that one of them was going to step through a tent or something. But right. um, And then there was quick mud. We almost lost our anthropologist who was started to sink in this pool of quick mud. Yikes. She, she was very calm. She uh, <laughs> was quite remarkable. It was actually quite funny. She said, excuse me. I'm going down. I'm really me. going down. And we, <laughs> oh, my goodness. The bubbles are coming up. She's sinking. It's like something out of a, out of a B movie. And oh, boy. Like so half the yard. Her, her snake 
uh, gators or snake guards that filled up with mud, and it was just literally sucking them under. Oh, no. Wow. wow. Scary stuff. Yeah. So, and, and then the insects. I mean, that wouldn't even... You can't believe the insects. I, yeah. The first night I got into bed and I was exhausted, soaking wet because it rains all the time. And mm. took off my clothes and lying there naked thinking, oh, thank God I've got those wet clothes off. And then I suddenly realized something I hadn't noticed before. My entire body was crawling with insects. Oh, Douglas. I, I, I jumped up I with a like... yelp. I said, oh, my God, there's, there, there are insects <laughs> all over me. And I, you know, I realized they were like tiny chiggers. They were like the size of a grain of sand. And they were like eating burrowing into my flesh. It's oh, my goodness. I, I feel I like they don't call it the Mosquito Coast for nothing. What's that? They don't call it the Mosquito Coast for nothing. Yes, but here, here's the funny thing. That word does not come from the word, the Spanish word for mosquito, which is mosca, little fly. It actually comes from the fact that the Indians in that area were supplied with muskets by the British to fight oh. the Spanish. And musket, the word musket in Spanish is mosquete, so they became known as the Mosquete Indians, now the Mosquito wow. Indians. And, of course, that's the Mosquito Coast or the La Mosquitia, which is the Spanish version of it. But that's not to say there aren't just a few mosquitoes there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, from there, so here you're at the camp. How far was it to get to where you discovered the lost city? Well, we had to cross the river and climb up an incredibly steep embankment, which was so steep that actually they had to rig up fixed ropes on it, uh, these guys. Mm -hmm. And then we were right there, and here was the pyramid right in front of us. Uh, the archaeologist really? with his LIDAR map is saying, there's the pyramid right there. And we were all staring at it and we are saying, where? We don't see anything. All you could see were leaves. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was such a disappointment. The jungle was so thick, you couldn't see anything at all but leaves. Hmm. And I'm, honestly, this jungle was so thick that if you put it down in Times Square and put yourself in the middle of it, you would not know that you were surrounded by tall buildings. Wow. That's so thick. So, so we, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say we climbed the pyramid. We went all over. Um, we didn't uh, clear very much. The, the goal here was to be as unobtrusive as possible. Mm -hmm. And we just made wonderful discoveries of, I mean, the artifacts on the ground were spectacular. We couldn't, couldn't believe. Can you tell we us finding. a little bit about the, you know, what, what did you see? What, what did you find? Um, and, and interestingly enough, as you say, artifacts on the ground and, and not even necessarily in the earth. Well, it was, it was interesting. The, uh, they were, well, the, the most amazing thing we found, we found quite a lot of stuff, all very deeply buried just the peeking out. But the most amazing thing we found was at the base of the pyramid, a cache of what, a 52 stone sculptures, beautiful stone sculptures, just the heads of which were peeking above the ground. Wow. Um, and uh, the first thing I saw was a jaguar head coming out of the ground, snarling jaguar, beautifully carved, and it was covered with moss and wet with the rain. And it was the mist was drifting through the trees. And then as I looked through in the twilight, I could see the heads of other sculptures peeking up, vulture heads and monkeys and, and um, uh, you know, snakes. And it was so, such an electrifying moment. Well, first, everyone's yelling and shouting, actually, you know. But for the first time, I really realized, wow, these people are real. They, 
I suddenly felt an emotional connection to them, whereas before it was all this sort of lost city, very sort of theoretical. All of a sudden, I realized these people were amazing. They made beautiful objects. They were powerful people. They were self-assured. They were confident. Um, and really, do we, do we know com- anything about the people who who lived in this in this um, city or, or in this area? You know, it's a, not really. The Honduran archaeologist with us, I asked him that question. He said, yeah. well, what we know about these people is nothing. Really? So, but we, we do know something. They Entirely shrouded in mystery and time just wiping a civilization away. It, it's true. They're, they were, they, they grew up, the civilization grew up in the frontier of the Maya. So okay. they adopted a lot of aspects of Maya culture, including... The famed uh, Mesoamerican ball game, which you know, where the losers sometimes lost their heads. Mm. Built, they built pyramids and they laid out their cities like the Maya, somewhat. Okay. But built it earth and stone and adobe and wood instead of in cut stone and li- cut limestone like the Maya. So, so their cities did not survive as beautifully intact as the Maya did. So what? What, they, what makes the city of the monkey god so? Um, uh, you know, stand out and so exciting uh, compared to some other discoveries. Well, the the probably the most interesting and unusual thing about it is that almost all discoveries, I put that in quotes, discoveries of ancient cities in, in Central America were not made by archaeologists. The indigenous people knew where they were all along oh. and brought the archaeologists there to show these ruins to them. And that's how they were discovered. I got you. Uh, so all these other cities that have been discovered have been disturbed. They've been looted. Stuff has been dug up. They've been tramped around. Even curious people hundreds of years ago were taking these things and putting them in their houses, you know, sculptures. They look pretty cool. Right. This city was totally untouched. The inhabitants of this city walked out, and the next human beings to walk in were us. And so it was beautifully intact from an archaeological perspective, even though it had suffered the ravages of time. So when this uh, cache of objects was excavated, all the objects were in their original position, except from the falling of trees, some had been displaced. Okay. It revealed enormously important information about this culture, why they placed these objects here, and what the objects meant. Wow. So we're talking about a completely unlooted um, archaeological ex- excavation. Um, is that in the plans, or, or is this going to be dug up and, and explored? Well, just the cash was dug up because here are objects worth, you know, millions of dollars. Okay. And uh, the Honduran army was guarding the site, but you can't guard it forever. And it yeah. was also the Hondurans were very excited by the discovery. And they wanted to show the objects off and they also wanted to study them. Mm-hmm. So they excavated just 200 square feet of the cash down to 18 inches. That's it. Wow. And they brought out 500 sculptures, uh, which are now on display summer in the National Museum. Uh, most of them are being curated and studied by archaeologists at a new laboratory built uh, nearby. Well, I say nearby, you know, in the closest city, which is, uh, you know, 100 miles away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there are a few right now actually in the American embassy so that American visitors really? can enjoy. Okay. And are these large artifacts? Like, what are, what are we talking about as far as what, it, what are the artifacts that are on display? Well, they're, they're, they're not gigantic. Uh, probably the largest ones may weigh are stone urns that weigh maybe three or 400 pounds. Okay. Uh, most, I'd say most of them can be picked up by two really strong people. Okay. 
Um, they're, they consist of uh, these great urns um, and also seats, which were thrones of power, they believe. They're not sure what really? they were for, but they were, they were stone seats decorated with animals like jaguars and snakes and <clears throat> monkeys. And they were believed to be seats of power where a shaman would, would sit in the seat and through the use of hallucinogenic drugs would put himself in touch with the, uh, with the animal uh, that he represented. Okay. Um, it's kind of a way to, to tap into the power of the jaguar or of the vulture or of the snake. Interesting. And, uh, so they were sort of religious, sacred objects. So how much would you say technology is what made possible the discovery of, um, of the lost city? Well, I would say it was probably about 100%. Really? Because it's really hard to, it's hard to imagine anyone getting into that valley um, to explore yeah. and be able to find this stuff in the thickest, thickest jungle without, without actually tripping over these sculptures. I mean, you could walk by through the river, walk by the city a hundred times and you didn't have no idea that there was anything there. Um, so it was really, the, the technology was what did it. Um, and in fact, LiDAR technology is transforming archaeology. Uh, one archaeologist compared it to the advent of carbon-14 dating, saying it was a revolution in archaeology. For the wow. first time, mm -hmm. you can map with incredible precision um, archaeological sites down to centimeter precision. Um, just in a few just days. Nuts. Now, is there are there plans with this technology to like this is this is something very specific to uh, you were saying military and um, it's not something that's mass mass available. Uh, no, it isn't, and it's very expensive. The price is very that's high. That's it. Yeah, you have to fly a plane. Um, the operation of the of the of the equipment is very high, and also one of the technological challenges that I didn't mention earlier, but that's pretty cool is that the plane itself has to keep track of its position in three-dimensional right. space every second to within an inch as oh, it's flying. Wow. Now, that's a lot more than what GPS can provide. Yeah. And so that's where the classified military technology comes ah. in. There's a skilled can inside the LiDAR machine, which cannot, it's a felony to open this can. It's called an inertial measurement unit, and it's the same... Uh, technology that's used in guiding cruise missiles to their target. And what it does is it takes, it measures every inertial movement of the plane, every pitch, yaw, bump, you know, all the turbulence and everything else, and is able to, through really powerful computing, able to locate the position of the plane in three-dimensional space to within an inch. Because obviously the resolution of the ground can't be greater than the knowledge of the plane's position in space. Um, right. If you, your technical audience will understand why that is. Um, otherwise, you know, if the plane's bouncing around three or four meters at a time, you're not going to get a resolution better than three or four meters. Right. right. And uh, But planes are, you know, you're going to intercept turbulence and, and things like that. So it could be a little bit of a, a logistical nightmare, I would think, to be that pilot. I, I think it'd be pretty tough. But is this a technology? Pretty tough. <laughs> There's an <laughs> understatement. Yeah, impossible for Robbie. Uh, is this a technology that is, like, is it a giant uh, LiDAR device? Or is this something that could eventually find its way to, say, uh, a, a drone-type system that could be flown from the ground? Well, I'll tell you, that's very interesting. The miniaturization of LiDAR is proceeding at a tremendous pace. And in fact, 
LIDAR is what is going to be used in self-driving vehicles, not radar. Really? But much more accurate. It is much more precise. And, it, you know, the wavelength of, of, uh, of laser light is much shorter than of radar light. So, you know, you just get a better image. And uh, this is uh, the basis of the lawsuit between, I believe it's Uber and, and, is it, and Google or Uber and Apple about okay. the use of LIDAR and self-driving vehicles. There's a big lawsuit that just was filed about this technology. Mm -hmm. But it's extraordinary. They mapped, you know, LIDAR is not a new technology. They mapped the surface of the moon with it. They mapped the surface of Mars using LIDAR. But the accuracy of it, the fine-tuning of it, and, the, and the, the resolution of it is dramatically increased. Okay. And that's, that sounds exciting to me because um, you're, you're on this threshold of this technology becoming something that may be more readily available to archaeologists and, and even, you know, to the point of hobbyists. Uh, eventually, we're going to possibly see that from what you're saying because the, the driving technology behind the cars, it's going to get more accurate. It's going to get smaller and cheaper as they mass manufacture this stuff. So maybe, potentially, that's something that we would see. Now, does LiDAR... Is it only something that works, uh, you know, above ground, or could you use it for underwater expeditions as well, or would the water mess with the lasers? Well, that's that's a great question. They're actually developing an underwater LIDAR, um, and it's a special green wavelength of light that <clears throat> passes through water more readily than other wavelengths, but it, it only penetrates about 40 feet before oh, okay. it comes. Okay. incoherent and you don't get a good uh, reflection but 40 feet is a lot i mean if you tow a, a device on the surface of the ocean or even tow it you know lidar works in pitch darkness as well so you could take these things and tow them you know over the the seabed and make an incredibly accurate map of the seabed that's far more accurate than anything that that side scan sonar or anything could do Sure, and they could That's submerge amazing. the technology itself. Um, now, is it is it safe? Are there any risks to using LIDAR? It's, it's totally safe. This is an infrared, uh, uh, invisible to the human eye. It's infrared uh, laser beams, which uh, don't have any effect on plant life or animals or anything. You can't even see it. Wow. So it's uh, totally harmless. Okay. I gotcha. Now, you were talking about the, uh, the technology within the plane for knowing exactly how the plane is moved. Did, was special software built to integrate that into the LiDAR uh, topo uh, topography, or were they separate programs that ran and then you coordinated the numbers? How did you sync that stuff up? Well, it's, that's, that's, you know, it's, that, that's a very good technical question, and it's the heart of the whole thing. There are three different systems for locating that plane in space. Uh, the first is a regular GPS in the plane, which is, locates it to within about 10 feet. Okay. Um, just, you know, it's a standard GPS. Then they place ground units on the ground, fixed points on the ground, which are communicating directly with the GPS satellite. And that data is collected while the plane is in flight. And then those two data sets are combined. And that gives you a, an accuracy of a little bit less than a foot you know, of uh, a position in space. And then the IMU unit, which is handling all the turbulence and the bouncing around, um, fills in the rest to give you the, the centimeter resolution that, that LIDAR can, is capable of now. Wow. Wow. That's and, so cool. and you know, the, the, the LIDAR we used just in 2012 was shooting 125,000 laser beams a second. 
the latest LiDAR machines are shooting six times that number um, oh, now. Unbelievable. So it's, it's just tremendous uh, uh, computing power that's required to analyze all those laser beams and returns because a single laser beam can sometimes give you two or three returns. Right. So you're dealing with billions and billions of points that have to be mapped you know, oh. digitally. I could talk about this for hours. This is so fascinating. This is right up my alley. This I love this. It's taken me to new worlds in technology and what this could be used for. And oh, I know. It's fantastic. I love it. Uh, we're speaking tonight with Douglas Preston. He's the author of The Lost City of the Monkey God, A True Story. Make sure you go to cat5.tv slash monkey god and you can pick up your copy today. Douglas, it has been a fantastic pleasure having you here joining us on Category 5 Technology TV tonight. Uh, before we wrap up, there was a curse that was mentioned um, about yes. the city of the monkey god. Are you some, you know, when you went in and, you know, the first night, snake, attack, you know, scary stuff, uh, all the stuff that happened, are you one who believes in these curses? Well, I didn't believe in these curses uh, at all. Um, just the, the, basic, the basic sort of legend is that all who visit... The lost city, the monkey god, will fall ill and die. Well, you know, who believes that kind of stuff? Yeah, okay. Last time I checked, we all end up dying, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's true, 100% true statement. Um, but uh, it turns out that legends are often based on the truth, and the valley of T1 was a hot zone of disease, mm. a virulent hot zone of disease of oh. a really terrible uh deadly tropical disease called mucosal leishmaniasis. And two-thirds of the expedition came down with this disease. We didn't realize it until about oh two months after the end of the disease. It's, it's incurable. Oh. Um, it is uh, uh, horrible. Um, I'd, be, I'd be delighted to discuss your listeners with a description of its symptoms. Maybe we um, should but, look it up. We'll post a link below. <laughs> I, I almost fainted when you started talking about the snake. So. Don't, don't, don't Google it. It's, it's a flesh-eating parasite, okay. which is it's also called white leprosy, and it, it migrates to your nose and lips oh, and no. eats them away until they fall off, leaving a, a weeping open sore where your face used to be. Oh, oh my goodness. And then, and untreated, the disease continues to eat away at the bones of your face until there's just a hole, and then you die. Oh, yikes. Now, that will not happen to us. Unfortunately, I was one of the people who got the disease. Um, it's very difficult to cure. It's, uh, very, it's a very interesting disease. I mean, as a journalist, I couldn't be happier with getting this interesting disease. Oh, my. <laughs> in, in the sense that I can write about it, not happy that not I Not one of it. those boring diseases. <laughs> I know, like like malaria. I mean, everyone gets malaria. That's oh, really <laughs> Dinosaurs got leishmaniasis. I mean, they found a piece of amber with a sandfly in it that had sucked dinosaur blood, and in this blood were leishmania parasites, fossilized, you know, preserved in the amber. Wow. So uh, it's, a, it's the oldest disease that we know of. It's a very complex, single-celled animal. It's not a virus or a really? bacterium. A single-celled animal. Wow. Yeah. I can, very, see, I can see your wonderful face, which means that it didn't progress too far with you, but does well, that mean that you're cured? Or No, it's, it's remarkable what they can do with plastics these days. Uh, that's a joke. Sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to respond to that. I'm like, wow, they did a great job. Wow, you look so real. I, I looked closer at, at your yeah. nose. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, we, the National Institutes of Health 
uh, became very interested in our disease. They're studying it. Um, they have the finest uh, Leishmania laboratory in the world where they're breeding the, the sand flies and they're, they have infected mice. And they're trying to come up with a vaccine or some kind of treatment for it. And so we all got treated there for free. We became part of a, a medical study. The doctors just loved us. And uh, it's not curable, but it can be controlled. And, you know, I'm in better shape than, um, well, you know, I have to say, unfortunately, some of my compatriots on the expedition are in much worse shape. And one is really um, very ill and wow. they're really worried about him. You know, I, I don't mean to make light of this. It's just no, absolutely, no, I understand. And yeah, but it's, it's it's just from a journalistic point of view, it's a very interesting medical mystery. Cause right, I hear you. Yeah, it turns out the point, the, the kind of leash that we got, uh, is really unknown. Um, they don't they sequence the genome. They found a new species. So unreal. Well, you can read all about the expedition, about uh, the experience that, uh, that Douglas, our guest tonight, has uh, gone through with the expedition. This is The Lost City of the Monkey God, and Douglas Preston joining us tonight. He's a New York Times best-selling author. Douglas, it has been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thanks. It's been great to be on the show. All the best. All right. Take care. Thank you. This is Category 5 Technology TV, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, you can find our website at www.category5.tv. Lots of fun having Douglas on the show. Make sure you go check out his book at cat5.tv slash monkeygod. Uh, we're going to head over to the newsroom, Sasha Dermatis. What's up? Here are the stories we're covering this week in the Category5.tv newsroom. Air-gapped computers can have data stolen by a nearby drone. Cloudflare had a bad data leak. We may as well get used to it, yet another web-connected children's toy has leaked a ton of data. And the next-gen gallery plugin for WordPress is our next big exploit. Time to upgrade. These stories are coming right up. Don't go anywhere. Now here's another great way you can support the shows you love from the Category5.tv network by shopping at GearBest. That's right, Jeff. Uh, Cat5.tv slash GearBest. It's an online store for the geek streak in you. Or the loved ones. Well, of course. I mean, especially your loved ones, right? Uh, because Cat5.tv slash GearBest, quite frankly, has all of the greatest tech gifts that you could ever hope for at rock-bottom prices. Do they have cell phones? You betcha. Cat5.tv slash GearBest has a wide assortment of unlocked Android cell phones and tablets. What about compute, uh, consumer electronics? Those make a great gift. Absolutely. From high-tech watches to action cameras, headphones, even virtual reality headsets. Cat5.tv slash GearBest has you covered. They literally have it all, Jeff. Literally. Really? It's like a superstore right from the comfort of your own chair at your computer through the interweb. Yeah, I, there's no way they have it all. It's true. It's just a bunch of ele uh, random electronics. Test me. Um, what about clothes? Yep. Both men and women, fashionable apparel at rock bottom, super duper prices. Kind of like this. Well, look at this coat. What do you think? It's a slimming mock leather jacket. I love it. It's available for less than $30 plus free shipping at cat5.tv slash gearbest. All right. You kind of got me there. Wow. Any other questions for me, Jeff? Uh, now that the winter has passed, flying season. Do they have any good deals on, say, drone copters? Oh, my goodness. 
Well, check this out. Dude, they have everything. Check out over 500 various drones. And not only that, they're available marked down by about 30 to up to 63% off the regular price. Love it. What's the website again? Well, you're going to find GearBest on our partners' pages for any of your favorite Category 5 TV shows like New Every Day, Category 5 Technology TV, The Pixel Shadow. Uh, but of course, if you want to shop absolutely right now and you want to go straight to the site, all you have to do is visit cat5.tv slash GearBest. See, that's easy. Cat5.tv slash GearBest. That's right. Happy shopping. I'm Sasha Dermatis, and here are the top stories for the week of March 1st, 2017. Airgap computers aren't physically connected to any network, and so should be prote protected from remote hackers. However, Stuxnet showed air gaps can be breached. Besides that, an insider could always insert a USB drive into an Airgap computer. Now, security researchers from Israel's Ben-Gurion University have demonstrated that if an attacker did manage to infect an air-gapped computer, they could steal data semi-remotely at their leisure by using a camera to capture signals from the LED lights of its hard drive. The LEDs normally flicker when the drive is undergoing read and write operations, but can be made to transmit data visually. The malware that researchers devised can force the hard drive LED to blink 6,000 times per second. If those lights are visible from a window, a camera-equipped equip drone, or a telescopic lens could capture the signals at a distance. The researchers explain that data can be leaked via the LED at a rate of 4 kilobits per second. That speed is incredibly slow by today's standards, but it's more than enough to steal encryption keys or text and binary files. According to the researchers, it's an impressive 10 times faster than previously, previous optical covert channels for leaking data from air-gapped computers. The beauty of the attack is that the hard drive's LED blinks anyway, making it easy to conceal that the infected machine is actually transmitting data. That is crazy. Really, when you think about, like, it, your computer, I know on my computer tower, I see the little yeah. light flickering all the time. You sure do. So I really do. You'd never yeah. suspect I would that never that yeah. there, there's some sort of weird conversation going on. This reminds me of back before Bluetooth was invented. Mm -hmm. um, I had a watch, and it used um, it flashed my computer screen in order to download data to my watch, calendar appointments, and things cool. like that. Right. Do you remember that technology? I do not. No. Wow. I wish I could remember the name of it, but this was my first like wireless watch. It was That's a great neat. watch, but it literally, there was no transmitter. It flashed the monitor in order neat. to download the data. So similar kind similar of technology. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Crazy. You're never safe. They'll exploit anything. <laughs> That's right. Your hard drive LED. Come on. Insane. Cloudflare, a service that helps optimize the security and performance of more than five and a half million websites, warned customers late last week that a recently fixed software bug exposed sensitive information that could have included passwords and cookies and tokens used to authenticate users on the sites they visited. A combination of factors made the bug particularly severe. First, the leakage may have been active since September 22nd, nearly five months before it was discovered, although the greatest period of impact 
was from February 13th to February 18th. Second, some of the highly sensitive data that was leaked was cached by Google and other search engines. The result was that the for the that for the entire time the bug was active, hackers had the ability to access data in real time by making web requests to affected websites and to access some of the leaked data by querying the search engines. The leakage was the result of a bug in an HTML, HTML parser they used to modify web pages as they passed through the service. The parser performs a variety of tasks, such as inserting Google Analytics tags, converting HTTP links to the more secure HTTPS variety, op obfuscating email addresses, and excluding parts of a page from malicious web bots. When the parser was used in combination with the three Cloudflare features, email, obfuscation, server-side excludes, and automatic HTTPS rewrites, it caused Cloudflare Edge service servers to leak some of the content from memory and expose it on other websites. Graham Cummings, the Cloudflare CTO, has ruled out the possibility that the secret keys for customers' transport layer security certificates were exposed in the leaks. Still, he said end-user passwords, authentication cookies, OAuth tokens used to log into multiple website accounts, and encryption keys Cloudflare uses to protect server-to-server -server traffic were all at risk of being exposed. They're warning that Cloudflare customers should, at a minimum, strongly consider changing passwords. Okay, that's, that is a problem is, to me, just that, because that's their recommendation. Um, and, and just so you know, I wasn't being a jerk. We had this conversation before. That word <laughs> is like, actually what is that Latin word? to me. Obfuscation. I can't, I can't even say it when I'm trying to repeat it. It's like it's a different <laughs> language. I cannot say it. Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> here's, here's the issue. The, the particular exploit on Cloudflare, it affected us um, in a way. Not, don't worry, your data is safe. Um, because nothing that we transmit is, is private or anything like that. Everything is, is I'm very, very security-minded here. Uh, but that said, it affected us in that we use Cloudflare. Right. And so there is potential that, you know, if somebody was watching an episode of Category 5 TV on our website, that episode may have shown up on some other website. So here's the oh, okay. thing. Here's the problem that I have with, okay, well, if you're a Cloudflare customer, change your password has nothing to do with, uh, with Cloudflare customers, mm -hmm. so to speak. I can change my password, and sure, that, you know, if, if, I, if my password on Cloudflare was exploited, then that's great. But the problem is, is if I were to, let's just say, let's say Category5.tv was vulnerable, uh, which we're not, okay, because the data that we're transmitting is not personally identifiable. Um, but let's just say it was, just to use the example. So if I logged into Category5.tv, let's mm -hmm. say if you did, okay, okay and m I pass my password over to Category5.tv. Now, Cloudflare's leak now exposes that password on Jeff's blog. Okay. So now Jeff's blog shows Sasha's password. Right. For Category5.tv. Completely unrelated sites could be entirely, they could be different corners of the world. They just use the Cloudflare service. So the only way to protect myself from this particular exploit now that it happened is to change Sasha's password on Category5.tv. Has nothing to do with changing my password on Cloudflare. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's this messy situation where we don't know how bad this is. We don't know which what private information has been exposed. And that's why this one is a little bit scary because 
we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Cloudflare doesn't know. WordFence doesn't really know mm-hmm. what data. Now we have little snippets and excerpts of data to show, oh yes, this happened. Right. This is approximately what is happening and it's been fixed, but we don't know the scale of the data breach. So do you think that maybe their statement was a little kind of like blase, like maybe a little stupid. strongly a little, consider, uh, you know? uh, Marketing cliches. Right. Like the marketing director says, make sure you change your passwords because that's what you do when there's an exploit. Right. Right. And for most people, because they're not savvy in this area, they go, okay. And they think they're protected. Yeah. Right. Not at all. Well, exactly. <clears throat> I use... Um, I use Dashlane for a lot of my passwords, okay. um, and I don't have anything that I'm aware of that's under Cloudflare. Um, <clears throat> Cloudflare is a DNS, right? Replace, like they replace the DNS record. So understand, it has nothing to do with Cloudflare to you, right? If you go to Category5.tv, my website, you are going through Cloudflare to get there, right? But what I mean is, I didn't get any notice from any of these any of the sites that I use saying we're under sure. Cloudflare, we, we might be affected. But yeah. I got this I thing they would know. Yeah, from Dash, Dashlane saying change mm-hmm. your password. And I'm, so I read the article and I'm going, this may not be the issue though. Right. Mm-hmm. So do I really need to go through this whole process again? Yeah. So, you know, all the sites that I'm on, it's like, <sighs> yikes. Um, has this impacted you that you know of? Let us know. Um, post us an email live at category5.tv. Back to you, Sash. All right. Internet-connected teddy bears dubbed cloud pets leaked personal information. This put voice recordings, email addresses, and other sensitive data pertaining to children and their parents at risk of compromise by who knows how many people. Cloud pets are billed as a message you can hug. They read stories, play lullabies, feature interactive games, and let parents record messages for their children. The problem? The devices stored user data in an easily accessed database without any form of password protection. Troy Hunt from Have I Been Owned says that the cloud pets database was indexed by a search engine for the internet of things products and has been accessed by many people hunt said information from roughly 821,000 people was compromised in this way within the databases he said are references to almost 2.2 million voice recordings of parents and their children exposed by databases that should have never should have never have contained production data that would be enough of a problem on its own, but upon further examination of the Cloud, the Cloud Pets mobile app, Hunt discovered even more easily exploited security problems. Cloud Pets apparently stored user information in an Amazon S3 bucket that do- also doesn't require any form of authentication to access. The only thing needed to view someone's profile picture, uh, the name of a child, and the name of the relatives with whom they can communicate via their futuristic teddy bear is the proper file path. Voice recordings from children and their family members can be found in the same way. Hold on, it gets even worse. Hunt discovered that Cloud Pets has no strength requirements for user passwords. Someone could just type L as their password and Cloud Pets explicitly advises parents to use QWE as a password in in a getting started YouTube video. Neither option is secure in any way, and Hunt explained that even though CloudPets stored passwords as bcrypt hash, cracking those simple passwords would be trivial for any hacker. 
As it turns out, the product's creators were warned about these issues at least four times, but never responded to any of those emails. So let's recap. A bunch of internet-connected teddy bears collected and then stored information in public-facing databases without password protection, served data via Amazon S3 buckets without safeguards, actively encouraged people to use weak passwords, and ignored several warnings. Cloud Pets aren't the only internet-connected toys with privacy issues, as we've heard in almost weekly news about sto- weekly news stories about data leaks. Right now, the message seems clear. Don't buy internet-connected toys for your kids. Yikes. It's becoming it's, such a common... You're, you're, it seems like redundant to last week's news and the I week know. before that. It, it's insane. And the thing is, these pets, or these pets, these toys look amazing. Yeah. And like, the feature set is cool. And the price is right. And yeah. now I'm, you know, I want to see this leaked data and see just how many instances of, you know, these, this data is just, you're so snuggly. You're so cute. Mm-hmm. The recordings. See, That's my impression. When I was, <laughs> what, what was it, like 200,000 audio recordings from parents, I think it said. And I'm sitting there going, how many lawyers out there, whatever, going, mm. ooh, I wonder if one of my clients has this and do we need to worry about it in a legal case? And, and they will probably see that. Somebody will buy up the data. Sure. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I don't know. For some reason, every week we have another story or multiple stories about breaches of data and information. And I just, I'm starting to develop this callousness when it comes to it, where I'm like, really, people? Are we that surprised that somebody is going to find some sort of exploit and get your information out there? And everybody's like, (gasps) no. I think my position on this, and and maybe yourself as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, you're in the newsroom, so my position is kind of like it's like when there's a recall, mm-hmm. right? I saw a recall notice come up on my my Facebook feed the other day, which I've already seen before, and it's like old news. And my temptation was to comment, "This is like three years ago, right. this recall." But it's like, wait a minute. It's important that people know this, sure. And right. so it's it's yeah, it's same old, same old. It's another thing exploited, right. but. If you have one of these teddy bears, you need to know this. Oh, absolutely. And it's not about not knowing, but it's more so the fact that why are people still continuing to produce products that, that like... We know the answer We know to that. the answer We're to not going to say it because we're not going to get political. I okay, know, now, but, here's my point in it. Have you ever tried to take a child's favorite toy <sighs> away from them? Yeah. Ever? Like, ever? Like, that... No. Ooh, I am not like evil. Like, that doll from last week or that teddy bear from this week they are somebody's favorite toy yeah that is the heartbreak because they're gonna remember that they can't have it anymore sasha if you need to know how to get rid of your favorite stuffies mm-hmm. i can tell dave there's there's always a backstory as to why that the teddy bear had to go find his family because he heard that his grandma was sick and oh, so he's gone on a trip so heartbreaking this is the I news. I can no longer go on with the news. I have, I have young children, and I'm thinking about my kids losing their stuffy. Yeah, well, but yeah, a stuffy that transmits their information. Yeah, that's right. Maybe but you can dissect the stuffy. That's right. That's true. Maybe they can render it in, a, like, they can brick the stuffy. You can <laughs> brick find, it. You can watch the internet traffic as the stuffy communicates with its server. You can create a DNS host redirect so that the host name that it goes to, which is S3 or whatever, and it would redirect to your own in-house server. <gasps> this and, is good. This and could be a show. And then you can create your own 
your own service can we for can, your kid's teddy bear. Can we maybe order one of these teddy bears and you no. can do a show on how to do this? No, if I order one, then it's dangerous. It'll be listening to us and running up our internet bill. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you got more? Yeah, I've got more. Oh, okay. <laughs> more than one million websites running the WordPress content management system may be vulnerable to hacks that allow visitors to snatch password data and secret keys out of databases. The vulnerability stems from a severe SQL injection bug in NextGen Gallery, a WordPress plugin with more than 1 million installations. Until the flaw was recently fixed, NextGen Gallery allowed input from untrusted visitors to be included in the WordPress prepared SQL queries. Under certain conditions, attackers can exploit the weakness to pipe powerful commands to a web server's backend database. For the attack to work, a website would have to be set up to allow users to submit posts to be reviewed. An attacker could create an account on the site and submit a post that contains malformed next-gen gallery shortcodes. Web security firm Security has assigned a severity rating of 9 out of a possible 10 points to the vulnerability, which was fixed in version 2.1.79 of the plugin. Website administrators who rely on NextGen Gallery should install the update immediately. Feel like it's never good news <laughs> here. You're on category five. It's just been one of those weeks. We are not even talking about Amazon in that regard. I have great news. My kids' Pokemon cards yeah? did not release data to the internet. Hey, that's supremely great news. Fantastic. I'm just saying, what was on that piece of paper? still there nobody else knows <laughs> good news that great, is great great news. technology those, <laughs> cards, those collectible cards <laughs> thanks for watching the category 5.tv newsroom don't forget to like and subscribe for all your tech news with a slight linux bias and for more free content be sure to check out our website from the category 5.tv newsroom i'm sasha dermatis Thanks, Sasha. This is Category 5 Technology TV, and our website is www.category5.tv. Hope you're having a fun night, and uh, it's so nice to have you here. I can't believe how, uh, you know, the show is just, like, where's the time? Yeah. Uh, we were having so much fun with our interviewee. Uh, Douglas Preston was joining us. Uh, make sure you check that out. If you're watching live, make sure you go to our website tomorrow and uh, watch the on-demand, because there are going to be the extra assets there pictures and things like that that you're going to be able to see so cool. uh, that are going to be added so that's really cool uh, and if you're watching on demand then it's, you're like what I saw those pictures just a few moments ago awesome very cool uh, well I uh, was in Toronto yesterday yes took the kids uh, there's um, at the base of the Sky Dome is uh, the Ripley's Aquarium and I, I, I had this thought just before I left literally just as we were packing up and getting ready to go I thought 360 camera nice right okay so head on over to cat5.tv slash fish if you want to see what i did all i did because I, I had to be simple this was a family outing with my kids and my right. wife okay all right so it wasn't going to be a complicated setup they don't allow professional rigs or anything so what i did is i brought one lens of the 360 camera so that gives us 360 degrees around and over, uh, or around, and 220 degrees over. So right. there's a black spot in the middle where the stand was, which I was holding mm -hmm. a selfie stick. Nice. So I, it, so I just kind of pulled out this lens and and then I held it there as the conveyor took us along. Um, so you can actually see what it looks like inside Ripley's Aquarium. Which is so cool. And you, you can put on your, your VR headset and you can look around what we saw and you can hear my kids 
talking about it and getting excited and well, look up there awesome. and when you look up you'll actually see it so it's cat5.tv slash fish if you want to see it um sasha i yes. got ten thousand four hundred and seven steps while we were there oh, i think that's awesome that's my record yes my record well done. I just I feel like I need to pull up to see how many steps I've For some reason, today. I feel like that should be low for Ripley's, though. Well, there's a conveyor belt sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't when know that. About halfway through, you're on a conveyor belt for so... a lot of it. Have you been? No, have you I, haven't, been? I have not. No. Oh, you got to go. I, I want go. to go. It's I just I can't afford it. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a family of five. I so, mean, yeah, after yeah. 7 p.m., it's half price. Then it's like having a family of like two and a half. But don't they close at like nine? Yeah, but you can You'd do have the whole thing fast. in two hours. Oh, you it took can't. us four. Well, you went slow. We did go slow. But you don't have to, it to go be slow. In, yeah. 12,710, you show can you off. see that? Can yeah, you see what you didn't see is the whole show. She's got it in her pocket and she's shaking yeah. her leg. She's going, why are you going like this, Sasha? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, uh, I guess that's, that's really all the time that we have this week, hey? <laughs> Yes. And with that. Yeah, and and on that note, now that I've been defeated, no, I'm so I proud. You, no, I'm I proud was so of you. proud. No, you're the- Sasha keeps beating me down into the ground. <laughs> I did were- get a couple of messages this week that said I was pretty cool. You are pretty cool. Here. Nobody's Does this make you feel better? Three thousand two hundred and twenty seven. He's got L cars on his wrist. I do have L cars on my wrist. What? Yeah. yeah. How come I can't see? But but I have because it's it's too far away. It's small. But three thousand two hundred and twenty seven steps. That's all I've done today. So you've done like three times that. Mm. So there you go. Good job. Thanks, buddy. You did a great job. Thank you. I did a great job. <laughs> hey, it's been so much fun having you here. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, Douglas's book. Okay, we've got it. Uh, just a quick link for you is cat5.tv slash monkey god. All one word. And uh, you'll be able to get that through Amazon. Uh, but that's all the time that we have tonight. I hope you enjoy the show, and we will see you next Wednesday night. See ya. Take care. Bye. Bye.